Thank you, Bella. Uh, If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Uh, Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you have a pew Bible, it picks up on page 1,423. It was great having all the kids up here. Actually, I have photographic evidence that I was once a kid. I think we have that up here on the wall. Thanks, Mom, for this. Uh, First day of school, 1988. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, before we moved to Nebraska, on the, when I lived on the north side of Spokane, Washington, you can see there, like, in the background, the trees and everything, and, you know, there were really cool places to go ride your bike as a kid. And I could ride my bike all over, but, but not everywhere all over. There were certain busy streets that I wasn't allowed to cross. I think we even have, like, a, well, you know, it's not an aerial view, but you kind of get the idea. Anything, I had to stay inside those white lines. But one day, I was thinking about video games, new video games, really cool 1980s video games uh, that I wanted to play that I didn't have yet, because you can't have all of them. And I remember seeing a game system at a store that you could play kind of in a demonstration version, and I wanted to play that. But, But the problem was I had to leave my home, and I had to go to the promised land of games, and I think we have a picture of that up here, where a kid can be a kid. But... To get to that store, I'd have to do something that I shouldn't. You're about to see in these next slides. I have to cross one of those busy streets. And then another. And then another. In fact, I think I was two miles from home before I finally got there. And let me tell you, I made it safe and sound uh, to Toys R Us on my own two wheels just fine, but I did not make it home that way. I was crossing through the parking lot of a senior Froggy's Mexican restaurant uh, rather than the sidewalk where I should have been, and uh, so which meant as I was crossing a side street, a tree blocking my view kept me from seeing what I was about uh, to have a collision with. I think we have a picture of that over here. Okay, it's not the real A-Team van, but I mean, I did what I could uh, <laughs> to find a photo. You get the idea. Just imagine this. You know, less than 100 pounds, boy on a BMX bike versus two-ton 1980s conversion van. The van won. Fortunately, I saw it in time, uh, and uh, I would leaned to the right really hard so that I kind of slid, and my, only my front tire ended up getting run over by the wheels of that van, just barely missing my nine-year-old legs. They were kind enough to offer me a ride home afterwards, and as I was dropped off, someone was going to know what happened. But the problem was, as, as far as I had wandered, And as my parents learned what it almost had cost me, this wasn't the first time someone had to give me a ride from the other side of one of those streets. There was a pattern developing in my life. What would be the response of the one who loved me when they saw that I was going astray? Well, I can look back in my life and I can say, well, when I was two days old, it looked like mom and dad bringing me home and adopting me and bringing me into their home and raising me as their son. Years later, it looked like sacrifices that were made so that I could have a a better life, things I didn't appreciate until many years later. But there had come a time in my life when I wanted something so bad that I was willing to do what I shouldn't to get it, and it was leading me into danger. What does a parent's love look like then? It's really the same question whether you're talking about a human parent or whether you're talking about God as as a heavenly father. In fact, in the book of Amos, God has been addressing uh, the way that his children have been going astray 
many ways for a long time, taking advantage of the poorest and the weakest in their community, ignoring God's values, pursuing their own selfish desires, and turning worship into a farce that's really just about themselves. And all the time, they were living in the promised land, the place that was granted to them, given to them as a gift by God's promise. But at the rate they were going, they were in risk of losing their homes, their livelihood, their, their very freedom. What does it look like when God shows his love to his children? What does that look like when they go astray? That's what we're going to see here in Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the walls. You will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain to one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, the other had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched out from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, He who forms the mountains, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. There's a lot going on in this passage. We can't address all of it, so I just want to look at three things that Amos shows us here. A problem, a response, and a purpose. First, the problem. What's going on here in this passage? I mean, really, when God starts comparing people to to animals, you know something is up. In verse 1, God calls this group of women living in Samaria cows of Bashan. Now, here's the funny thing. If you were a cow, that's the kind of cow you would want to be because Bashan was a great place. I mean, they had like a virtual buffet, rich pasture land, and because of it, always happy, plump, healthy cows. They were the champions of the cow world. And the women that Amos was writing to were also the champions of their society. They bore all the signs of of health and and beauty that people in their society valued, and they lived very comfortable lives. But Amos is showing us that comfortable life didn't come as an accident. In verse 1, it says that they're the ones who oppress the poor, those who crush the needy. 
In other words, the people that lacked the resources to protect themselves and they could be taken from. This life of oppression is likely the reason that they're being now compared to the cows of Bashan. In other words, that they have a life that was purchased at the cost of cruel oppression and harassment of the poor and the needy. While selfishly, they have no problem getting their own needs met, saying to their husbands, bring us some drinks. Come on, let's live it up. It's, it's the same greed-driven oppression that Amos has been calling out God's people for for chapters already in this book. And these women were just a symptom of a much bigger issue in their society. In fact, what's more, if you look at verse 4, Amos describes their religious pilgrimages to, to Bethel and to Gilgal, not as great worship trips, but actually as sin. There's a few reasons for that. You see, Bethel and Gilgal, first of all, were actually rival places of worship that the ten northern tribes of Israel uh, would set up so that they could avoid going south to the, the kingdom and the king that they're rebelling against, the descendant of King David, so they could avoid going to the place where their true God was actually worshipped in Jerusalem. And even Bethel itself, as one of these examples, had uh, there for worship a golden calf that they meant to worship as their God. By the way, that's a big no-no if you know anything about Israel's history. You see, to put this in modern perspective, for them going to Gilgal and Bethel to, quote, worship their God would be like someone from St. Louis who says they bleed cardinal red going to Chicago, buying tickets to a Cubs game, uh, wearing blue, singing, Go Cubs, Go! And then coming back to St. Louis and talking about what a great Cardinals fan they are. It goes on in verse 5. It says that Israelites love to boast about their corrupted rituals. But given how the rest of their lives lived, it was more likely that their religious rituals were really more about trying to manipulate God than actually to worship God. If their worship was about anybody, it was really about themselves. See in these first verses, what Amos is doing is he's giving us this piercing diagnosis of God's people. False religion done for show seeking their own desires at the expense of others, while all about it living like mere animals as they seek to fulfill their most basic appetites. And in all these things that Amos is talking about really are just symptoms of one underlying disease. It was a life centered on the worship of themselves, something that not only demeans God as the rightful center of the universe, the only rightful center of their lives, but also causes them to treat others as less than human while themselves finding themselves denying their own humanity and their mere animal existence. But it's not just their problem back then, is it? If we think about it, it's our problem too. You see, we don't have to be taught, we know this at a very, 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 very young age, how to live like the world revolves around us. Those of you with two-year-olds are nodding your heads. And the symptoms go far beyond anything that any one prophet could ever imagine to speak of. That's the problem. How would their God respond? What's what we see beginning in verse 6 is actually an example of the things that we just heard about uh, in that scripture reading described as, as discipline, God's discipline. The response is God's discipline, which... I think makes a lot of us uncomfortable just hearing that. Just the word discipline alone, let alone God being the one to actually do that. And I think a lot of that is because we have a misconception of what discipline really is, what its nature is, when it's God the one who's actually doing it. And so first, please just let me say this to you, what discipline is not. Godly discipline is not revenge. 
It is not getting back at somebody. It's not, you hurt me, so I'm going to go hurt you now. And it's not making somebody pay for that thing that they once did. It's not, as a friend of mine once worried, God digging up something that you did in your past that you repented of long ago so he could bring it back up, throw it in your face, and, and get you later. It's, it's not that. In fact, it's not even God's final judgment. In many ways, it's actually meant to spare us from that. That's what it's not, but, but, but what is it, really? I'll give you a few things. If you take notes, uh, you can write a few of these things down. First of all, biblical discipline is covenantal in nature, meaning it's by nature for the believer, not for the unbeliever. For somebody who already has entered into a covenant relationship with God, they've already received God's covenant blessings and his covenant promises. And if you want a real basic definition of a covenant, uh, it's two parties bound together by a promise. Many of you have seen this at a wedding or been a part of it. It's your own wedding. It's, it's a marriage itself. It's a covenant relationship. And the church is often described in those terms, like, like the bride of Christ. Uh, parents and children have a, what you call a covenant uh, relationship. Uh, and God's discipline, he says, is for those that he describes as his children. We see, we heard in our scripture reading uh, this verse, that God disciplines those that he loves, those he accepts as a son, and through the prophets, Israel as a nation is often described as God's own child. What we see here in verse 1 is that's who Amos is really addressing. Those who lived in Samaria, it was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. These are the ones that have received God's covenant promises, the ones that he calls his children. And like all children, God's children need to grow. So God's discipline is also developmental. In nature, It's a form of his guidance. It's a form of helping us to grow. It's, it's what we read in Hebrews 2 is described as, as training that's meant to bring something about, meant to bring about righteousness and, and peace and holiness. Let me tell you, these things don't come naturally to us, do they? I mean, the opposite seems to be what comes more naturally. Just think about this. How often do we, even when we know what the right thing is to do, we really don't want to do the right thing. We may prefer what's wrong most of the time. Maybe we know how we should be treated, but for some reason we don't find ourselves treating others the same way that often. Spiritual growth doesn't come naturally. And spiritually speaking, the people that Amos has been talking to in this book, they got a lot of growing up to do. They're like the Toys R Us kids. They don't want to grow up. And so what we see beginning in verse 6 through 11, shows us how discipline is often unpleasant in nature. We heard in our scripture reading, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but, but painful. See, the displeasure of it actually reminds us of something that we don't always want to hear, that we've gone astray, and yet as a warning that there's actually more severe consequences if we persist in it. If you've ever accidentally touched a hot stove, by the way, kids, Never touch the stove, even if you don't think it's hot, trust me. But if you've ever done that, you notice you just, you're automatically, the pain, the reflex is automatically to pull back. You feel the pain, but it's good that the reflex pulls you back because you know that if you keep your hand there, something a lot worse, a lot worse pain is going to come if we don't pull back. It's, in one sense, uh, that pain can be a, a mercy And in a sense, that's what God is doing here. What we see beginning in verse 6, 
with their grumblings would have been the first sign to them, that first discomfort to get their attention to tell them, hey, something's, something's wrong here. God made all these promises, but he says if you go astray, you're going to start seeing these specific signs, and we're starting to see them. Well, the hunger in their stomach, the grumbling, didn't quite do the trick. So as we read on, we see that discipline is often progressive in nature. Some of you have heard this old Chinese proverb. You do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. It's great Chinese wisdom, I tell you. And let me tell you, the God of the Bible is no less wise. In verses 6 through 9, only after they've been ignoring God's commandment for who knows how long, he brought hunger. And then he brought drought. And then he brought crop disease and locusts. But each time it says they did not return to him. And so in verses 10 and 11, you could say he starts to turn up the volume. Disease and would come. Loss and battle would won. They would remember these are what God said would happen if we neglected and abandoned him. What really would have gotten their attention is when he starts comparing them to the enemies of God in these verses 10 and 11, to Egypt, to Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, they would recognize the things that were happening to them as what actually comes to the enemies of of God. And it would have been a wake-up call showing them, you know what, we're probably acting a lot more now like God's enemies than we are like God's children. You see, just like the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who did not know their God, they were finding that they were resisting God every step of the way. See, the way of discipline is actually this. It's actually applying the smallest amount of discipline necessary to turn our hearts back The more intense responses only come in light of a persistent, continued resistance. I saw an illustration of this in a a movie about the life of a disgraced political lobbyist named Jack Abramoff. It was before he was sentenced to six years in federal prison on on conspiracy and, and fraud charges that he admitted he had essentially lost his way. But in hindsight, he doesn't believe that during that time God had abandoned him. In fact, he says it was the exact opposite. Abramoff said once in an interview, God sent me a thousand hints that he didn't want me to keep doing what I was doing, but I didn't listen. So in Abramoff's words, he set off a nuclear bomb. God's discipline doesn't go straight to the nuclear option. He only does what's necessary to redirect us to what's described in the Old Testament uh, in this term of a relationship with God, what they often called walking with God. Walking with God. And yet, let's face it today, a lot of us, we don't walk very many places. We drive, okay? We're, We're drivers. And so I want you to imagine something. I think we even have a slide to show you what this is like. I want you to imagine that you're not walking somewhere, you're driving. Uh, And you are driving as Lightning McQueen. There you are. That's you right now. For those kids who watch the Cars movie, that's you. You're Lightning McQueen, and you're driving down the road. It's not a sidewalk, and it's not a racetrack, but we're going to send you somewhere else. We're going to send you driving down a mountain road. I think we got a a visual for that. You've got, like, really, you know, you're literally between a rock and a hard place there. Uh, You've got rocks that you might, you know, run into on one side and, like, a 10,000-foot cliff on the other. Well, maybe not that far. So imagine this as we think of what, about God's discipline. Think of God's discipline as, as, as your Lightning McQueen driving down this road. as kind of like the lane markers, the rumble strips, and the guardrails. God is your destination. He's the one that you're following with, walking with. 
But if you've ever been driving before, you know what happens. You start looking at, like, the nice scenery here and there, and wouldn't you know, you start looking this way, and your car goes that way. And you start looking this way, and you go that way. And someone in the back says, Harold, watch where you're going. You may not notice that you've drifted outside of your lane until you start hearing the... It's the rumble strips. It's those really annoying things that get your attention to let you know you should probably change your course and get back between the lanes. Of course, if that doesn't work, you've always got the guardrails there, and, and those have a, a real, real good way of, of making you pay attention if you hit one. Those lines that guide us are a lot like the way that God would guide us. He actually primarily does it. He primarily teaches us, trains us, disciplines us, broadly speaking, through his word. Uh, through the hearing of his word, the reading of his word, the studying of the scriptures. It's, it's how he guides his children primarily, how he trains us, how he grows us, how he shows us the way. And yet, just like that uncomfortable sound and feeling when you've crossed those lines and you start hitting the rumble strips, we're not really going to like it when God starts saying no. It's probably going to be uncomfortable when we start experiencing that bumpy ride that often comes when we've crossed those lines. But by design, it gets our attention. It's, it's so that we can change course, but sometimes we'll even ignore that. And God has to turn up the volume for us, and we can almost hear the horrible sound of, of metal side panels scraping against the guardrails. And if you're the car, if you're Lightning McQueen, if you're driving down the road and you start running into those guardrails and you start hearing the metal scraping against metal, if you're that car, that's going to hurt. Not nearly as much as if there were no guardrail and nothing standing between you and the edge of the cliff. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world you've lived long enough, you know that often our circumstances in life will change, sometimes in very painful ways. And sometimes it's simply the result of living in a world with sin. Sometimes it's, it's due to really no fault of our own, and, and sometimes it actually is due to something that we've done. But regardless of whatever the cause is, God never wastes a teachable moment. Sometimes the purpose of those moments is actually to redirect us, to redirect us wandering children when he knows that we're headed for disaster. Just think about it. Like the car being scraped up by the guardrail, when you're about to head for a spiritual cliff, whatever God uses to stop you, by its very nature, whatever he uses to stop us, by its very nature, it's, it's probably going to hurt. It's going to surprise us. It may even feel scary. And yet it's caused by the very thing designed to save us. God's acts of discipline are his guardrails. His guardrails when we're heading for the cliffs and we won't turn back unless he acts. And what that looks like can actually vary from person to person because as many of us have probably experienced, discipline is often very targeted in nature. It's not just random, it seems. Often, but not always, it looks like taking away uh, what we might call a false idol, a functional God, something that we're letting rule us tell us what we're worth, give us our identity, rule over our lives, whatever's enslaving us, that false idol, something we've put in God's place. Usually it's a good thing that we want in such a bad way that we're willing to go over a cliff 
in pursuit of it. Incidentally, when I risked my life to play video games, guess what I was grounded for for the next two weeks? But it's also what we see here in verses 2 and 3. For people who idolize their, their status, they idolize their comfort, they idolize their false sense of security that their wealth had brought them, we see in verse 2 and 3 what God's response would be. Their high status would be lost as they're taken away as captives. Their bodily comfort would be lost in the pain of, of the hooks of their captors. Their security would be lost as they're taken through the holes now broken open in the walls of their city. And despite the pain it can cause God's children, please hear this. God's discipline is always loving in nature. You see, love isn't simply desire to, to make someone feel happy in the moment. It's a desire to see them thrive. It's a desire to see us repent and avoid the greater pain of what would happen if we don't change course. It's a desire for nine-year-old boys to make it to ten-year-old boys when they're riding their bike when they shouldn't. See, as the scriptures say, how much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? See, the Bible uses the discipline of human parents to try to help us better understand what God's discipline looks like, but it actually works the other way, too. You see, God's discipline can actually guide us in what it looks like to discipline the children that, that God gives his people. And, and because godly discipline is loving in nature, it really only works properly when it's done in love. Not out of rage, not out of insecurity. As, as one parent put it, not so that I can look good when my kids are better behaved. Not so I can feel better about myself as a parent. And it only works for the child when they know that they're loved. When we know that we're loved. When we trust that the human parents that God has given us, they actually want the best for us. It means choosing to believe our parents, though none of them are perfect. None of them were perfect. They're doing the best that they know how to show that love for their children, even when it's not done uh, the way that the child probably thinks that it should be, even when it's unpleasant at the time. I, I remember talking with a parent even this week, uh, talking about how, you know what, the nature of discipline, having done it, like, for a long, long time, is it's actually easier to not discipline. It's actually often harder on the parent to discipline than it is on the child. Let's just say you're 16, and uh, you did something you shouldn't do with the car, and you wrecked it, and suddenly you lose your car privileges uh, for a month. The parent actually doesn't want to suddenly become your taxi service again and, like, spend hours driving you all over Timbuktu when you have a license to legally do it yourself now. But discipline is not about what's easy for the parent. It's about what's needed for the child. No matter how old we get, we never outgrow our role as child. Even our parents don't outgrow their role as children, no matter how old they are, because God is still teaching them Godly discipline works best when we actually trust in the love of the one who offers it. But if God is that parent, how can we know that his discipline is actually rooted in his love? What we see here in this passage is the answer lies in the purpose of God's discipline. What is God's discipline supposed to lead us to? Well, let me tell you, it's not primarily to a behavior but to a person. You see that actually five times here in this passage. That's refrain that we see between verses 6 and 11. Five times God says, return to me. 
That's not just a figure of speech that only means start behaving rightly. You see, the goal of biblical discipline is primarily relational, not not behavioral. But when the relationship is restored, a new life actually follows. That distinction matters because seeing discipline as mere behavior modification can backfire, can have the exact opposite response. You see, discipline that's based in fear or guilt or shame, I mean, it can bring temporary results, but it actually doesn't touch the heart behind the behavior. That's because sometimes the goal of, of our own attempts to discipline can be more like just making us feel better than actually the other person being better off. Sometimes we think that if we've got the outward behavior, you know, corrected, everything else is fine. But what we see here in Amos 4 is that you can be outwardly obedient. Let me tell you, the tithes and the offerings that God's talking about through Amos, those in themselves were actually good things. But they were done the wrong way for the wrong reasons, with the wrong heart. And it showed that while they were, you can be doing the right thing outwardly, but still be far from the Father. If you want to remember anything from this message, please hear this. Biblical discipline at its core is about a beloved child being called back to their identity as a beloved child. It's a call to live out of who we really are. Brian Chappell talks about this when he tells a story about his own experience with discipline. He writes this, There was a time when I would say to my oldest son, Colin, you are a bad boy. Because you did that. It's easy to say that, but listen to what I really said. You are what you did. You have become bad because you did a bad thing. What you do determines who you are. But the gospel message is actually the opposite. Who we are determines what we do. So it may sound silly, but my wife and I disciplined ourselves to, when talking to our children, Instead, I would say to my son, Colin, don't do that. You're my son, and I love you. I want what he does to be based upon our relationship. I don't want our relationship to be based on what he does. That's what makes the Christian gospel so unique. Those who are trusting in Jesus don't repent so that we can be loved. We repent because we are loved. See, the gospel changes not only the way that God deals with us, but the way that we deal with each other and also with the way that we see ourselves, not as orphans, but as beloved children, not living as if we have no guidance and just have to figure everything out the hard way ourselves, not simply living for ourselves as if we don't already have somebody looking out for our best interests. With that in mind, what do you do with those last two verses? I mean, seriously, God says through Amos, prepare to meet your God. I mean, what's that about? Let me tell you, the first thing that came to my mind when I hear that's kind of the conclusion to this, I'm imagining it's 2 a.m., it's dark, no lights are on, and a window slowly opens, and a teenage leg slides through the window and steps on that one creaking board that mom and dad intentionally never got oiled, and the lights turn on. And there's mom and dad looking like this, and there's dad doing this. That's what I thought at first, 
but fortunately, there's people a lot smarter than me that spend their lives studying this book. A guy named J.A. Matir, Old Testament uh, scholar, he gives a helpful reminder when he writes this. Wherever the idea of meeting God is found in the Bible, it has the connotation of grace. Grace, this way that we relate to God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did, because of his covenant love, because of his covenant uh, promises. And in verse 13, we hear a reminder of that covenant that God refers to himself by his covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, the name that only his children knew him by. What this tells us is this. God is saying in this passage, no matter what trials you endure, no matter what it takes to bring you back to myself, I am still your God. You are still my children. And God's actions always have one purpose, to see his wandering children come home. A while back, I told some of you part of the story about my love for Legos. When I was five years old, I was in a kindergarten class with a whole bunch of Lego toys. Now, the problem with all those really cool toys in your kindergarten class is when you go home and you can't play with them anymore. One of them was really cool, actually. I've actually got a picture of kind of what it looked like. It was this, like, Lego plate. It was, like, the biggest Lego ever. It was the king of Legos. You could build all sorts of Lego stuff on it. I didn't, I didn't have one. Um, and so, true confession... I'd already sneaked out a few small Legos from my kindergarten classroom by that time because they could fit in my pockets. In my five-year-old brain, I didn't think that something that big might go notice when I try hiding it under my shirt. It was basically as wide as I was. Of course, my teacher caught me within a few seconds. I had to give the Legos back, and then I knew my parents were going to get a call. So I didn't want to go home after school that day, and so I just didn't go home. I wandered the streets in the neighborhood. I, I met some older kids that also weren't at home and probably shouldn't have been the kids I was hanging out with, not good influences, whatever. But before long, it started getting dark. And as much as I was a little bit afraid of the dark, I was really afraid of what my parents might do if I actually came home. They knew that I was scared, though. But what I didn't know was that they didn't want to get back at me. They just wanted me to come home. They wanted me to be safe. They wanted me to be under the protection and the love of their home. And so when I didn't return to them on, their, on my own, they came to me. I was expecting rejection when I saw their face, but instead I just felt their welcoming arms. I found the face of a loving parent, tears running down their cheeks, of those that were simply happy to see me come home, eager for me to return to them, not to wander like an orphan, but to come home again as a beloved child. God's solution to his children's wandering is also to come to us, taking on the flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, calling his wayward children back to living as his wayward children, not as his wayward children anymore, but as beloved children, coming back to himself and what it would take to teach us how to become children of God. What happened on the cross would hurt him a lot more than it would hurt us. Christ being separated from God so that we wouldn't have to be separated. Christ taking the wrath of our sin upon himself so we wouldn't have to fear that as his children, as those who have trusted in him. Friends, the heart of God for his wandering children is to see us return, to see us come home 
He will move heaven and earth, if that's what it takes, to bring us back to himself. Let me pray for us. Father, it's by your grace that we can even call you Father. There's so many ways that we find ourselves wandering, sometimes for a moment, sometimes for a season. For some of us, it might even feel like years, and we're not even sure what we're doing here today, but we're here. Father, remind us of your love as a heavenly Father for your children. Even as we come to this table, turn our hearts back to you that our lives would follow. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.